Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Greetings and welcome to another edition of The Way of Noah coming at you on Wednesday, March 20th. It's a little late in the evening, but I'm getting this up and dropping this out anyway. Shout out to folks mobilizing all across the Southeast and Ohio, um, Kentucky, etc., who are mobilizing and organizing all day, every day, but particularly right now in this very dire time as access to abortion uh, and safe um, medical care is under direct assault by the right and various um, forces that have convened nationally to not only deprive women of being able to seek and pursue an abortion at all, let's just be clear, this wave of heartbeat ban, air quote, bills, which is, you know, a joke, uh, they are they, they are effectively uh, total bans on abortion. Um, on this episode, I had a chance earlier today to talk with Amy Littlefield, um, a journalist with Rewired.News. Amy uh, had a piece about a week and a half, two weeks ago, not dead enough, public hospitals denying life-saving abortion care to people in need. And it's a really great conversation. Definitely, definitely check it out and share also share Amy's article, but I, I just want to take a step back, and Amy and I talk about this some, just to, just to talk a little bit about what is actually happening right now nationwide, and we can't tolerate this BS about people are personally pro-life, but you know, I mean, upholding Roe is, is such an easy, as we've already seen from the way, you know, things have gone post-Kavanaugh um, going into office, upholding Roe is such, it's not even the right standard. Um, because these restrictions, I mean, when you even look at this, the, the country right now, and you look at places like Oklahoma, like Missouri, like Texas, like here in this, like other parts South, when you look at the restrictions that are already placed on abortion, like Ohio, um, there are places with 72 hour waiting periods. I mean, when you look at these really, really stringent restrictions that are placed upon, placed upon a woman's right and ability to access, you know, safe, uh, medical procedure, right, in, 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 in handling their own health, um, it's restricted and so severe that it's, it, it, there is a very real intrusion on people's ability to pursue and receive needed health care. And then you add in the layers as we get into the conversation with Amy in terms of economic, socioeconomic status and race and proximity and availability of such services. It compounds people's ability to even access that right that's protected on the row. So people say, oh yeah, I, you know, I'll uphold Roe, Roe is, Roe is, Roe is law. But when you look at the erosion of Roe and you look at the different machinations that are built into our legal system, our system of laws and legislation across the country, when you look at federally um, very anti-choice provisions that are built into to the way we fund healthcare, such as the Hyde Act, as Amy and I discussed, 
you see these real obstructions to people's ability to actually access care. This is not my wheelhouse and there's just a lot going on, but I wanted to touch on a, on a few noted things in addition to my conversation with Amy. Also wanna quickly plug that there are actions, please, if you're living in Missouri, Ohio, Kentucky, uh, here in Georgia, if you're living in any of these states that are currently actively trying to, I mean, if you're living in any state, period, and this is an issue that you're concerned about, particularly if you're also concerned about healthcare for all, right, Medicare for all and stuff like that, making sure that we have comprehensive reproductive justice, comprehensive reproductive care, comprehensive healthcare that benefits, you know, women, this should be something that is on your agenda and radar, making sure that that these are issues that people are protected. As always, when I talk about this issue, shout out to Kyla Hayes in North Carolina. Talked about the documentary Care Chaos before. We've talked about the siege that at times Kyla and her staff have had to deal with at the only clinic, I believe, in Mecklenburg County, which is where Charlotte sits. Um, but there are so many amazing people doing work right here in Georgia. You know, shout out to folks from... Um, Women Engage and the Feminist Women's Health Center, and of course, our local NARAL organizers and Planned Parenthood, Southeast folks. I mean, there, there are so many different names, and I do apologize. I can't remember because I should have sat here. Um, I will give a shout out to, to, to my dear sister Liliana, who has been in, keeping me informed on what's happening as we're lobbying. I mean, I've just been witnessing the massive efforts to organize and mobilize people, and it takes a whole lot to move people to action. It takes a whole lot to have people engage and informed to be able to put the pressure as necessary and needed on their elected officials, who unfortunately are making decisions that are in the best interests of their own egos and not our actually health, welfare, and well-being. Um, so in this conversation, you know, Amy and I get into a lot of stuff, but like I said, there are a couple things happen going on. There was a really great piece in the nation. I'll start with, um, shout out to Lori. Lori does really great work in Mississippi. Um, you might not always agree with her on Twitter. I don't either, but I definitely respect the work that she does. Um, Lori Bertram Roberts is an amazing advocate and voice. Um, and, and mom and activist and organizer, so many other like really great things and a soundboard and sister friend, um, you know, Lori has been organizing, uh, in one of the country's most restrictive states, uh, in terms of abortion rights. So Lori, uh, has the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. Um, it is a, it is a nonprofit located in Jackson and definitely check out and read the article more about Lori and the work that she has been that she has been working on but also you know what it is to look like to radically vision and re-envision what an abortion fund can do the purpose of an abortion fund and why it's even necessary now it's funny I finally got to meet Lori in New Orleans at uh, Netroots last summer and it is it is something like Lori has all her kids deeply involved. You know, Lori has also done work um, with, with folks all over the place. You know, shout out. Also, I have not gotten to meet anyone. I do not have a relationship, but I know of Sister Song very well by reputation. Another organization you definitely need to check out and read more about. Like I said, links to all these articles are in the description. But this week, Kentucky's governor signed an abortion bill into law, similar to what we're facing here in Georgia, similar to what's being proposed in Mississippi, and I think Ohio's trying to do it again too, and several other states, 
Um, but uh, it, the, the, the unique thing is, as soon as this law was passed by the legislature, the ACLU, the ACLU filed suit, and a judge issued inju- a temporary restraining order, a temporary injunction um, blocking the temporary injunction blocking the law from going into effect. Um, and of course, you know, the Republican governor, Matt Bevin signed it into law anyway. It is, um, supposed to take effect immediately. Uh, the enforcement has been halted for at least 14 days to prevent irreparable harm until an actual hearing could be held. Um, judge David Hale, the Western district of Kentucky held that the law was potentially unconstitutional. So, that is happening right now, um, and there's a battle. And, and this is also the thing, right? The, the, the party of fiscal conservatism, the party of fiscal responsibility is wasting our tax dollars to fight women on needed access to safe health care. Like, this is where their priorities lie. They're not, you know, when Bevin first came into office, he also opposed the Medicaid expansion that had been passed by the former Democratic governor, among other things. So, like, their priorities are not in line with what's actually needed for people to, to, to have the freedom to thrive and to be the people that we need to be living in our communities and doing better. Um, so that's what's happening in Kentucky. And then, like I said, here in Georgia, you have what is moving forward. Um, there are massive actions being planned, uh, lobby days. I mean, it's just really been great to watch citizens get training on how to go and lobby, to see all the different organizing groups come together, and to really recognize that that this is being done at the expense of things like paying attention to the maternal mortality crisis that we have in many areas. Not just rural. I mean, we have it. It's it's a huge problem in our rural communities, but we have a huge issue, particularly in the in, in part south, with maternal mortality. Here, Georgia is at the very bottom in terms of mortality maternal health um and we refuse to expand medicaid half of our counties do not have an OBGYN. it's a really dire condition we're talking about women's health and yet this is what the priority is it's banning it's it's enacting total bans on abortion that have no scientific basis no medical basis and are just something someone thought up because they want to move the needle on where you can ban abortion and what you can do so I'm going to kick it over to this episode with me and Amy. There is a lot going on, but I stress this because I know it's 2019 and I know a lot of our attention is on 2020, but we really need to be thinking about these issues and not just how they play out on the national level, but how they're impacting and shaping the dialogue and the work that is happening in communities around us. And this is just one of them. We usually talk about Roe v. Wade in in terms of the Supreme Court. And and that's the other strategy that that, that the conservatives are using here. You know, you have all these bills, you know, you're going to have a flurry of lawsuits. And this is going to force a question that will then get them to the Supreme Court, because ultimately what they want is to definitely overturn Roe v. Wade. But we can't only focus on upholding Roe. We also have to start having more education for people and advocacy around what is really happening when we're talking about right and access to uh, safe abortions in this country? And then also the other access is accept- in terms of accessibility is, 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 is providing the care and making sure that women who are of a certain socioeconomic status, who are disproportionately uh, 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 tend to be black indigenous POC, I mean, these are issues that we're seeing that need to be addressed and we need the advocacy and the support. So, I'm going to list a couple of organizations. Folks can definitely, you know, that should help give you a starting point to look for other places near you. Um, but, but, but we need to expand our scope 
beyond just the candidates that we super like for president. Um, 2019 is, is, is not just simply a testing ground for 2020. There are elections, local and state level elections. In fact, Mississippi and Kentucky, two of the states that are in the process have either Kentucky just, um, like I said, Kentucky governor just signed it into law. Mississippi's on track trying to do the same thing. Both states have elections this year. So there, there are real consequences. People always say there are real consequences to elections. And I absolutely agree. However, what I disagree with is when people use the use that as a linchpin to then jump into a conversation of shaming voters. There are real consequences to election and the real consequences. We need to do better about our organizing and activism and tie it for those of us who are in electoral legislative spaces and tie it into the work of moving voters to action and helping people understand what is actually going on with the process and why we need them here with us. And not just when it's time to go yell and shout and, sh and shut it down at the Senate. You know what I'm saying? Like, we also need you to go make sure that when this pro when this anti-choice person is up for re-election, that we can actually mobilize and shut them down at the voting booth as well. Because elections have consequences. And part of that consequence is that we need to learn how to mobilize, engage, and get people into action. The final thing, which is not quite on topic, Andrew Gillum tonight is having a rally. Everyone was wondering what his big announcement was. He's starting a thing. Sounds a lot like Stacey Abrams' New Georgia project. Um, he has a goal to register 100, uh, I think it was a million people um, by 2020. And it's amazing and dope and wonderful and super ambitious. Like I said, I'm putting a plug for my girl Donna Davis. If you're going to be in Florida registering voters, definitely hit a sister up. Y'all might remember that name from the first episode of Finding Justice on the BET uh, episode that, that was standing ground. Donna's not only a brilliant strategist and organizer, she's also a really dope activist on the issue-based side. But, you know, I think it's great that Andrew wants to register voters, but voter registration is only part of it. And that's something that I've learned very closely from getting to know uh, staff from New Georgia Project, particularly the executive director, Insei Ufat, that the civic engagement component, the actual building and community with people, that, that that is a process that has to be done. So it's not enough to just register people and turn them over to the Democratic Party and be like, here, new voters. I mean, we, we have to stop abdicating the responsibility of doing this work to the Democratic Party, because unfortunately, the party... Um, you know, what, what we saw here in Georgia was an exception. It was not the rule. And even that had its own challenges. I've talked about it on a previous episode when I, when I reflected on sitting down with, um, in a report back scenario with members from the um, constituent outreach, different positions, we, we kind of talked through some of the challenges. I mean, but overall, we haven't seen a party apparatus necessarily move the way what we saw here in 2018 with Georgia. Florida, no diss to folks, but Florida didn't move as well as it, it could have and should have. And so my concern about hearing that the Democratic Party in Florida is going to try and register voters, too, is like, that's cool. That's great. But I don't know that y'all have the right people lined up and that you're actually setting aside ego to make sure this work gets done and that you're putting forward an agenda and vision. And there are plenty of people who need to be part of that conversation and visioning process. And I'm concerned that they won't be. And I know there are folks out there like, well, who cares about the Democratic Party, blah, blah, blah. Yo, I'm all about building opportunity and electoral justice. And there was a really good article. I'm also dropping that. That's also in, in the description that just talked about recently how in the South, a lot of people's focus has not been focused on the Democratic Party per se, 
we tend to end up aligning with in terms of votes and candidates with the Democratic Party just because of the way things fall. I mean, when you're here, particularly in the Deep South, Republicans are generally lying, cheating, stealing, and trying to deny our access to the ballot box even in 2019. So, I mean, like, the argument you might have sitting someplace, like, I don't know, Minnesota or Wisconsin or wherever else, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very different. So... That's not to say that, yes, rah-rah Democrats, but a lot of people's focus isn't even on, yes, I'm a Democrat and this is the Democratic Party. They're focusing on electoral justice. And that's something that became a big issue in the movement for Black Lives space in the past year or so. Folks have seen any of the electoral justice work that came out of that 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 body. Um, but electoral justice is, is a direction that a lot of people have, as organizers, are starting to move towards or already have been working in that space. And that is what their focus has been, moving people to action around issues that matter and making sure that we are engaged and informed about what is directly impacting our lives. And this is why on March 20th, 2019, I am encouraging you to look and see what local elections are happening in your state. You don't have local elections happening in your immediate community. What is happening in your state or in your region? And how can you help lift up and support good people doing good work? I'm going to kick you over to this interview with Amy. Please like, share, subscribe. If you are feeling the love, hit your girl up on patreon.com slash and drop a little change. I know I need to update the page. Working on it, y'all. Working on it. I'm a work in progress. It's hard out here being a working mama on top of all the other things going on. But anyway, appreciate y'all so much. Uh, as many of you know, right now, we have a major battle happening uh, in many states, many state houses across the country, and by advocates, all all year round, people are fighting and grinding in terms of making sure that, you know, access to abortions, that choice is protected, and that women and those who can be pregnant have, you know, access to the necessary medical care and services. Um you know, that's an ongoing thing. Usually we hear about it, unfortunately, in instances like right now where we have several state houses in the process of passing um, abortion bans that are unconstitutional and seek to frustrate access, not just to, you know, abortions, but but, but to, to, to safe abortions and needed health care. But today I'm talking with um, Amy Littlefield, uh, a writer with um, Rewire.News, who we're going to talk about, you know, these little-known laws that are preventing sick and pregnant patients from receiving the best care possible. And when we couple this with some of what we're seeing right now in the onslaught in terms of abortion access period, it really drives home a, a, a very serious um, issue in terms of maternal health care and, and OBGYN care, gynecological care, and just care and access for patients to, to necessary health health care and best practices. So, um, not dead enough, public hospitals deny life-saving abortion care to people in need is Amy's recent recent piece, and it puts a spotlight on hospitals that are routinely denying abortion care to people who with potentially life-endangering complications. Amy, thank you for your work, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, so, I, I just wanted to just, 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 can we talk, talk a little bit about uh, what? How did you? How did you start covering? How did you start covering? You know this specific topic. Like, what led you to looking at something like this? That is, I'm sure most people aren't even aware it even is an issue. Yeah. So I actually started looking at this because I heard from a doctor in one of these states that has one of these little known laws on the books, 
And she had recently moved to this state and learned about this law that prevented her from providing abortion care to patients unless they were extremely sick. And she had been shocked. And I was shocked because I didn't know that these laws existed. And I should say, you know, I report a lot on Catholic hospitals. So these are religious hospitals that follow rules from Catholic bishops. They make up one in six hospital beds in this country that follow these religious rules. And I know that these hospitals on religious grounds have turned away patients while they're bleeding and in pain from miscarriages um, because they ban abortion under most circumstances in these facilities. Mm -hmm. I knew that this was happening at religious hospitals, right? What I didn't know is that in 11 states in this country, some form of publicly affiliated institution – um, these laws apply to, to, to various different categories of publicly affiliated institutions. But in 11 states in this country, public hospitals are basically being forced to operate like Catholic, Catholic hospitals in that specific way. So they are only allowed to perform abortion under narrow circumstances, like if a patient's life is in danger. And in some cases that I found in this story, even when these patients were severely ill, the hospital leadership would say, no, you're not sick enough. Um, you're not, you know, you're not at that threshold where we consider you to, to really have your life in danger and where we, we would be able to perform an abortion. And one reason why I think this is really important to look at is that public hospitals nationwide see a higher percentage of low-income patients than private hospitals. Mm-hmm. Often, you know, poor patients can go there and get subsidized care sometimes or they can go to the public institution and know that they're not going to be turned away for not having insurance, right? Or they can be seen first and pay later. Um, so when you ban abortion care in, in public institutions, you're really removing the safety net for these poor patients, and they may end up having nowhere else to go when their pregnancy is putting their life at risk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that framing like that because I think, I think there are those of us who who have understood, you know, that religious hospitals may do that. But 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 hearing that when you're talking about public institutions and you think about, you know, you know, especially when you're a public institution and you know having a public service aid that people would do what is necessary to save a patient's life. But it sounds like almost in some of these, not almost, it sounds like this 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 wide interpretation that is that is available or at the discretion of hospital administrators to determine what is and isn't you know being serious you know health or or, or possible threat of death like where where that metric actually falls to warrant mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. uh approving a, a, one of these abortions I mean I mean we're also talking about a really small percentage of of, of, of abortions correct. Yes, absolutely. And that's a really important point. I mean, so 4% of abortions nationwide take place in hospitals. So you're talking about a very small percentage of overall abortions. And it's important to note, abortion is one of the safest medical procedures performed Mm -hmm. in the United States. You know, the vast majority of abortions can be handled safely in outpatient clinics. And in these clinics, it's a lot more affordable for patients because we know, you know, there's a huge infrastructure of anti-choice laws in this country and and policies, including restrictions on public insurance coverage of abortion. And so often, often patients are paying out of pocket and clinics are far more affordable for those patients than hospitals. Um, And so often it, 
you know, the vast majority of people can, can very easily be seen safely and the complication rate is very low um, for outpatient abortion care in, in standalone clinics. But so we're talking about a small percentage of patients who have life-threatening, potentially, pregnancy complications that mm-hmm. mean that they're too sick or too high risk to be seen safely in an outpatient clinic, and that clinic needs to refer that patient to a hospital, and sometimes there's no hospital to refer them to. And so that puts these outpatient abortion providers in a terrible situation um, where they are forced to choose between, you know, sending away a patient who you know, whose life could be at risk from that pregnancy or performing an abortion that's right on the line of what they would ideally consider safe, right? And so, for example, one doctor I talked to in Texas, Dr. Bhavik Kumar, told me he had recently seen a patient who had a pregnancy complication where her placenta was in danger of growing into her cesarean section scar, and that can be very serious. And another doctor had recommended that this woman should have her abortion in a hospital. But she went to two hospitals, one that was part of a public hospital district where, according to one of these 11 state laws, uh, abortion cannot take place unless, except under the narrowest circumstances, and um, if her, her life had been in danger. And she was turned away from that hospital. And the other was a faith-based nonprofit hospital. And Mm -hmm. after they both refused to to do the procedure, Dr. Kumar said, well, you know, in New York, where he trained, he would have absolutely done, you know, sent that patient to a hospital to have her abortion. That would have been the safest option. In Texas, the safest option was for her to see her in an outpatient clinic because she needed to end that pregnancy as soon as possible for her health. Mm. And and it just seems like, you know, this refusal to allow patients to seek care in the safest space possible actually threatens and puts them in greater risk, particularly, I mean, you have one example in your article, I don't know if this is the same one you were just talking about, where you had someone who had a a very severe heart issue and that Mm -hmm. outpatient clinics don't necessarily have, uh, it says here, advanced resuscitation heart monitoring equipment Mm -hmm. that a hospital Mm -hmm. would. You know, these are very particularized and specialized conditions that are potentially threatening to either the life of the mother and the baby or one or the other that, that, or the life of the fetus that requires, um, you know, that requires medical intervention that, I mean, if you've ever had outpatient surgery versus surgery in a hospital, I mean, you know the difference of Mm -hmm. what is available in terms of, um, in terms of just not just resources, training of staff. I mean, if you need, like, anesthesiology. I mean, there's, there's just, like, a whole range of things, right, mm-hmm. that exist in mm-hmm. a hospital in these heightened situations that you just don't have in any outpatient clinic, clinic for, mm-hmm. for any condition, usually. Exactly. That's such an important point. And, and so, you know, again, like, the vast majority of patients can safely be seen in that outpatient setting because abortion is a pretty minor right. and safe procedure. But for patients who, like that example you just gave, so this was a patient, another, also in Texas, a doctor named Gazala Moyadi told me about this case. She had a patient mm-hmm. who had suffered heart failure during a previous pregnancy, and now she was pregnant again. And because her heart had been damaged during that previous pregnancy, she was at an increased risk of dying from cardiac arrest. And as the pregnancy advanced and put more of a strain on her heart, that risk was climbing. And she was so sick by the time she got to the public hospital in Texas 
that she couldn't walk. She had to use a wheelchair to actually be able to get around the hospital. Um, but the, the leadership at that public hospital said no. In, in Dr. Moyeti's words, they said uh, she was not going to be dying at that moment. And mm. so she wasn't really dead enough to warrant intervention. That was how the doctor phrased it to me. Um, and what's so tragic about this case is, you know, it was devastating, obviously, for Dr. Moyeti as the doctor to break this news to this patient who, you know, was wanted this abortion to, to save her life. But she doesn't know what ended up happening to that patient. She knew that she didn't have health insurance and she couldn't afford to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to travel to New Mexico and pay for an abortion in a hospital there, um, which, you know, most people in this country don't have thousands of dollars available for an upfront cost like that. Um, mm-hmm. And Dr. Moyeti never saw this patient again, so we don't know what happened to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you were saying that there are 11 states, and I was just looking at, there's a really great map in this article, guys. You should definitely, definitely read the article, you know, definitely share, but also check out this map. I mean, you have some states that have, you know, we talk about states that restrict abortion care in public institutions. Of the 11 states highlighted, you have um you know, you have four that have an exception for rape, that have an exception for rape or incest. Uh, Mississippi has a weird split line, it seems like, where there, there's some portions of the state that have an exception for rape or incest, and some also have, some have only an exception for fetal anomalies and compatible with rights. But it seems like you have, what, five states here that have no exception for rape, incest, or fetal anomalies when you're talking about um, abortion care in a public institution. So those are that's North Dakota, North Dakota, Arizona, um, Kansas, Missouri, and Kentucky have no exception um, in terms of rape, incest, and fetal anomalies. So um, that seems even more precarious that it's only this exception that it's someone who has this this serious threat to their health, and even that is well, what do they determine serious? Because that's I can only imagine being in, in, in pain or really suffering through something requiring a blood transfusion or any other really dire situation and having someone say, oh, well, you're not dying right now or people have survived it. We, we don't make medical decisions in any other instance in that way. Mm-hmm. And it's appalling that, that, that pregnant women are subjected to this in a supposedly, you know, first world state of the art country that mm-hmm. still does see high incidences of maternal mortality, um, you know, I, like I said, sitting here in Georgia where we're actually number one in maternal, we're, we're at the bottom for maternal health, we're number one for maternal, maternal mortality, and we're staring down the barrel of, you know, an abortion ban with no real concern or conversation about what is medically necessary to protect women and the, the, their right to meaningful health access. I mean, this seems to be, this is a very serious an issue, but it's a part of, it seems like a larger issue with the way in which our bodies are politicized and we're not guaranteed access to the necessary health care that we need to leave, leave, uh, lead productive and healthy lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And just to name all the states, you know, because I'm sure people in these states are wondering, you know, is my state on the mm-hmm. list? So the, mm-hmm. the 11 states that have some form of law against abortion in publicly affiliated institutions are Arizona, 
Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and Texas. And then Louisiana, Mississippi, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania all allow exceptions for rape or incest, although the, the latter three of those, Ohio, Oklahoma, and Pennsylvania, require the crime be reported to authorities first. And then Mississippi and Texas also have they're the only two that, that make exceptions in cases where the fetus can't survive, so fetal anomaly cases, although mm-hmm. in Texas right now there's an effort to end that um, exception to, to the Texas law. Um, and, you know, as you point out, you know, these states that are on this list, if you look at this map, they're states that already we know have restricted abortion access in myriad other ways as well, right? So mm-hmm. these Restrictions on abortion in public institutions don't exist in a vacuum. They exist against this backdrop of, you know, waiting periods and restrictions on insurance coverage. Um, and I think that that really comes through in one of the examples I give in, in the story about a patient in Ohio. Um, and this was a patient who had a fetal anomaly at about 15 weeks. She was diagnosed with uh triploidy, which means that the fetus has three copies of um, three sets of chromosomes in each cell instead of two. It's a fatal condition. If a patient doesn't have a miscarriage, their baby will typically be stillborn or die shortly after birth. This is a wanted pregnancy, and so this patient, whose name was Chelsea, was devastated. But on top of being told she had this um, problem with her fetus, she was told that she could be at higher risk because of the condition for choriocarcinoma, which is a fast-growing cancer, and for preeclampsia, which, you know, again, speaking to the issue of maternal mortality, that's one of the the leading causes of of maternal mortality in this country, right? And it's a condition that's potentially fatal that's characterized by high blood pressure, and this made Chelsea particularly nervous because already her blood pressure had been unusually high. And then the doctor, on top of, you know, telling her that she had this diagnosis, that her baby couldn't survive, and that she was at risk of a bunch of health conditions as a result, the doctor said, by the way, uh, we can't help you here at this hospital, right? And this is the hospital where she's been going for care, and they're affiliated with a public university. And mm-hmm. so they weren't going to perform the abortion, because in Ohio there's no exception for fetal anomalies. Um and she told me she felt like she was on an alien planet. She was like, what are you talking about? Because in her mind, there was no question that if it was a choice between putting her organ function at risk and her life at risk to carry a pregnancy that had no hope of survival to term, that she felt she needed an abortion right away. But it's it's kind of – so, you know, for for those of us who might live in blue states, right – we don't understand what it means to have to hop through all of these hoops mm-hmm. um, that have been erected by state law after state law after state law in states like Georgia, where you are, in Ohio, where Chelsea was, that have chipped away at abortion access over time. And so, you know, for her, the way that that looked is, okay, she's turned away by her, you know, home institution it turns out that the last private hospital in greater Cincinnati where she lived that performed abortions for fetal anomalies had stopped doing so uh, a few years ago. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, Ohio lawmakers were on the verge of eliminating the surgery that she needed. So that same week that she got her diagnosis, 
um, state lawmakers approve this ban on violation and evacuation, which is one of the, you know, pieces of legislation we're seeing all in states across the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This bans the most safe method of second trimester abortion. Um, and so fortunately, unlike a lot of the other stories that I tell in this article, Chelsea was healthy enough that she could be seen in an outpatient setting. So right. she, she called her local Planned Parenthood. But even then, she needed three visits to comply with Ohio's 24-hour waiting period. So she had to go in for counseling and an ultrasound. She had to come back just to sign a consent form after the doctor who was going to do her abortion had signed it. Um, and then she had to come back again to have the abortion. She couldn't get general anesthesia, which she could have had at the hospital, but but Planned Parenthood did not right. it. So she had to be awake for, for you know, this uh, procedure that, you know, was ending a wanted pregnancy. It was, it was pretty upsetting for her. Um, she had to read a packet, again, another layer of anti-choice, you know, policy here. She had to read a packet about how she could parent her child instead, which was what she wanted mm. more than anything. And mm. the, the way she said it, she said it just felt like death by a thousand cuts. Like every time she would move closer to getting this abortion that she needed to, to preserve her health, there would just be another barrier in the way. And fortunately, mm-hmm. she was able to hop over all of those hurdles, right? But we don't know what happens to the patients who can't. And and there are plenty of people in this country who can't take, you know, um, three visits, you know, can't can't take time off from work to, to be able to make three visits to an outpatient clinic to sign all that paperwork, you know, who can't um, pay for an abortion if their insurance won't cover it, who can't do the research needed to figure out, okay, well, my hospital says no, where, where else can I go, you know? So, um, so I think to that point you were raising about maternal mortality, you know, we, we don't know how many patients, um, aren't able to get these abortions that they need for their health or to save their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is such, this is a huge issue. And then you further compound it by folks who may be in rural areas or have other issues of accessibility. And like mm-hmm. you're saying, if public hospitals are the only option for people and they're turning folks away, where do those people go? Because everyone I know in your article, you talk about, you know, um, one person was just talking about their only option was to just risk the health issues and continue with their pregnancy or possibly go to neighboring. This is one of the, the folks in Texas that maybe go to New Mexico and spend mm-hmm. thousands of dollars, you know, to be at a hospital there. But that's very cost prohibitive. The average person mm-hmm. who might be experiencing mm-hmm. this cannot do that. And right. just even just thinking about Ohio, right, um, and just, just, just my own experience, you know, in Ohio, and in this line from Chelsea, you know, talking, writing, writing, you know, her letter, uh, in opposition to state lawmakers, because this is the other thing. We have state lawmakers, oftentimes male lawmakers, who are making these decisions and have no real concept for, one, the science and medicine involved, but also, two, the actual real experiences of women, of people who give birth that have to go through this. And, and it's a different type of trauma that is being experienced by someone who actually wants to have their baby, right? Because mm-hmm. anti-choice folks act like, you know, people just don't want children or whatever the case may be or just have the baby and they can go to a loving home. And that has its own, that, that, that type of logic has its own flaws. Mm-hmm. But here you have someone who's saying, I actually wish I could deliver and carry my pregnancy to full term. But unfortunately, the only options are having a stillborn birth, having my baby die, you know, pretty much immediately after birth or something or having a miscarriage. 
those are all really horrible scenarios that 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 you already have to grapple with, and then you have this extra added layer of people putting all these barriers in your way to being able to handle and address that. Because the other part in here about then also having to deal with the protesters screaming at me on the worst day of my life, like it's already mm-hmm. hard. Have, mm-hmm. Like like people think that we just go and maybe some people do I don't know but just go skipping and happy happy and, and and throwing confetti to go have abortions these are tough decisions that people are making about their bodies and their lives um, I know they were tough it was a tough decision for me to make for my body and my life I'm sure it's a tough decision for other people and this level of intrusiveness that we see not just coming from these state legislative bodies not just from these hospital administrators but then also from those folks who decide that it's their duty to obstruct and harass, you know, on the streets, you know, so-called uh, pro, uh, protesters, it's just level after level and hoops after hoops. When you're compounded with dealing with something that is a very stressful, and in these instances we're talking about potentially life-threatening uh, 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 incidences, it just it just compounds so much more, and. And we have women being victimized, it almost seems like, on, on multiple levels by a system that's set up to deny them choice and access and, mm-hmm. and, and health and healthy care. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that point you raised about the, the compounding, you know, the protesters outside the clinic and the compounding effect of, of all of these different, you know, layers of restriction and opposition is so important. And, I mean, I think – you know, when you, you raised in the beginning of the interview, like, the, the question of these heartbeat bans, right, that, that are basically mm-hmm. total abortion bans that we're seeing right. in, in different states. And those types of measures are so dramatic and so clearly unconstitutional, right, that, that they get our attention, they, they create these mobilizations, which they should, because they are, you know, obviously illegal. And, and so it's, it's, it's great that the opposition is there, you know, in Georgia and other states. Um, at the same time, these levels like the, these laws like the ones restricting abortion care in public hospitals, I think have really flown under the radar. And, you know, they've been less dramatic, and yet their impact on patients' lives has been enormous, right? Because when you're going to your hospital, your local hospital that you rely on for affordable care, and you're told you can't get this potentially life-saving procedure there, that has a huge impact on a patient's life, especially if they don't have the means to be able to travel or figure out another option. Um, but, you know, the Guttmacher Institute, which, which tracked anti-choice legislation, didn't have a full list of these laws. You know, NARAL wasn't mm-hmm. tracking them. I think there's a way in which the, the laws that target um, things like public funding, public institutions, public insurance coverage, that really have this enormous impact on the most vulnerable people have kind of flown under the radar and gotten less attention and less opposition than some of those more sort of attention-grabbing um, laws like like the so-called heartbeat bans. Mm-hmm. 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 No, and I mean, that is that is so crucial. And, and I think what you're just talking about, too, just, just, just the way you laid it out in the beginning about what we see in terms of public hospitals and who is more likely to be seen at a public hospital um, and, and disproportionate access to necessary care, right, based upon, you know, socioeconomic status. And then in your article, you break down just even with race, 
Um, black women are three to four more times likely to die from pregnancy-related causes mm-hmm. than their white counterparts. They're also more likely to have some form of public insurance and to give birth in Catholic hospitals, which I don't think a lot of people realize either. Um, and, 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 I mean, just, just thinking about this issue in terms of public access and then the fact that it's not even being tracked the same way, right? Like, it, it, it falls under the radar because it's not the largest. What we see, we're, we're seeing the onslaught of attacks on on choice and, 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 and basically really what we're talking about each matters of women's health care rights. Um, we're not necessarily seeing this because it is a particularly, like, I guess, small percentage overall, but it definitely has to be a part of the conversation. We're mm-hmm. talking about, you know, women's health care access and, and human rights. And and some of these stories, not some of these, all of these stories that you share in here are, are horrific of, of varying degrees. But but we should not, even if it's a small percentage or whatever, whatever, it, however it breaks down, we should not be willing to tolerate the way in which hospitals are, I mean, you know, the accounts here about sending away miscarrying patients, that's traumatic. That's mm-hmm. just that's that's mm-hmm. just such a that's just a level of trauma being inflicted upon someone by a system that's supposed to do no harm, right? I mean, doctors take a, a oath to do no harm, and yet because of the limitations, restrictions that are being put on them because of public public policy and, and laws that have been passed, they are in effect not only doing harm but exacerbating existing harm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that that's such an important point that you you point out in terms of you know the. We have such inequality that's rampant in our healthcare systems. And, mm-hmm. you know, because of that inequality and structural racism, black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy related causes than white women. And in this country, we have a maternal mortality rate that is rising, right? In this extremely well resourced country that we live in, our maternal mortality rate is going up. And again, you know, the, the patients, as you point out, who are most affected by these restrictions on public institutions are people with pregnancy complications that are often exacerbated by poverty, often exacerbated by structural racism. And we don't have data to show us how many patients who die in childbirth or sh- shortly thereafter were denied an abortion that they sought for health reasons. We do have evidence that links state restrictions on abortion care to poorer outcomes for maternal health. We know that that's there, but we don't know, you know, and it kind of breaks my heart, honestly, to to think about that question, right? It's like how many people who died from pregnancy complications that had come up earlier in their pregnancies sought an abortion to save their health and weren't able to get one. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, again, like the, the people that we're talking about here are that, again, it's a tiny percentage of, of the overall number of people who seek abortions in this country, but they're among the population who is most, most at risk for dying, for, for dying from the, the health issues they face. And, and when we look at the leading causes of maternal death, it includes things like cardiac conditions, like that patient in Texas had. Um, preeclampsia, like Chelsea was afraid she was going to get, you know, includes things like infection, which, you know, if, if you work at a, a hospital like the one in the Midwest, where I talked to a doctor there who said, if a patient's in the process of losing her pregnancy in the, in the second trimester, long before the fetus is viable, there's almost no chance she's going to be able to deliver that pregnancy and a very high chance that she's going to get an infection that can be potentially fatal. So in a hospital that doesn't have any restrictions, you know, the standard of care would be to 
present the option to that patient of ending their pregnancy. Um, but in this facility in the Midwest, they have to wait until the patient runs a fever and is showing signs that they're really sick. And that's when their life is considered in danger enough that they can intervene. Um, and so for a patient who has the medical savvy to realize, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right, you know, I think I can get better care somewhere else, and who has the ability to travel, you know, potentially right. hours away to get care, and has the money to know that they can travel and, and access care somewhere else, you know, that might be outside their insurance network or whatever, um, those patients are going to get up and leave. <laughs> but patients who who don't have that, you know, medical literacy or don't have, you know, that um, re- access to resources to be able to, to potentially explore another option, those patients are going to stay until they run a fever and get sick. And at that point, the hospital will, will intervene to save them. And so I think this is really a story about that rampant inequality in our, our healthcare system and the way that these laws, as with the, the rest of the vast infrastructure of anti-choice laws in this country really fall unequally on people based on who they are and how they act, you know, what level of access to resources they have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I really appreciate that. And even just looking at this map, just like, again, you know, the 11 states, if folks, you know, just to repeat, are Arizona, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and Texas. And uh, when, you over, when you look over some of the states that are having, you know, some of the conversations and most restrictive, you know, policies, period, across the board in terms of anti-choice, um, there's overlap. I mean, there are obviously more states than just these that are part of that conversation, but it's definitely overlap when you're looking at who is restricting access the most. To, to really what's now amounting to a very cruel level. I mean, when you're talking about you have doctors just waiting to see if someone's fever, which when we know fevers are also not just a sign of sickness, but can also be a sign of infection and other really serious internal issues. We're waiting until people are at their most dire point before intervening instead of just intervening to prevent them from getting to a dire, potentially life-threatening point. It's it's absurd. And I'm sure it also puts people who went to medical school to save lives not endanger them, puts them in a pretty more a pretty crazy moral quandary. Um, when you're considering you, you you want to treat someone, but you literally can't because your hands are tied, because the institution you're admitted at won't let you do it. Um, and that's I can only imagine being a doctor having to sit on their hands and not be able to help their patient or send them elsewhere. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sure for many that's really challenging. Mm-hmm. I think it's heartbreaking for them, and I think that's one of the reasons why so many doctors felt compelled to to speak out in this article. Mm-hmm. You know, and and going back to that doctor in the Midwest, you know, that was something she told me. I mean, she had a patient who had um, metastatic cancer, right? And oh, wow. she wanted to be able to just provide, like, this patient was dying, right? She wanted to be able to just provide this patient with patient with the most supportive care that she could. But the patient mm-hmm. wasn't deemed sick enough to end her pregnancy. And she ended up having a miscarriage because the hospital took so long to deliberate her case and, and, and decide what was going to happen. And the doctor was like, I just wanted to be able to help this patient, you know. And and because of the law and these, you know, this, again, vast web of anti-choice restrictions that exist in this country, she, she couldn't do that. Um, she couldn't do her job. 
as a doctor, um, which I think does. It puts these doctors in a, in a terrible bind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And thinking about just from all the work that you see and done, just looking forward in terms of advocacy and just raising awareness, just, just as what are some lessons or takeaways that you really hope for people to, to, to walk away from listening to this and reading the article about, you know, this conversation and, and you know, the impact of these anti-choice decisions and laws overall? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, one thing is I think people should be aware of some of these lesser-known restrictions on abortion care. And I think the conversation has been very focused on Roe v. Wade and what happens mm-hmm. if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And the fact is, in states like the ones where these, you know, these 11 states where these laws exist, abortion has been so restricted that it practically doesn't exist, especially for the most vulnerable and most marginalized people in those states, right? They basically, when you have a 72-hour waiting period and you have laws that say, you know, you can't get your insurance plan to cover abortion care and the nearest clinic is hours away and your public hospital where you usually go for affordable care can't do it. You know, when you face like this, all of these different levels of care, like of of restrictions on care, you know, it's Roe v. Wade is almost a technicality for some of the most marginalized people in these states. And I think it's really important to be aware of that and to be aware of these, like, laws that have flown under the the radar that have created that reality. I think Mm -hmm. another really important piece as we move towards um, this uh, amazing conversation that we're having about Medicare for All and the need to address healthcare inequality in this country at its root by making sure that everyone has has access. Um, it's incredibly important that we confront the fact that our public infrastructure, as it exists in this country right now, you know, public institutions, public health programs like Medicaid, are riven with anti-choice restrictions that mm-hmm. prevent low-income people from accessing abortion care. So you have the Hyde Amendment, for example, decades-old measure that bans federal funding for most abortions, and which means that in most states, public insurance plans don't cover abortion except in cases of rape and and life endangerment. You have these related restrictions on insurance coverage for members of the military, Native Americans, you know, huge swaths of the population that rely on public funding for their um, and public programs for their health care coverage. I think it's encouraging that, you know, the Medicare for All measures that we've seen include comprehensive reproductive health care, which would mean overturning the Hyde Amendment. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, reproductive health care has to remain at at the center of that conversation as we have a wider, you know, dialogue about, like, extending um, health, health coverage to everyone. Because what we've seen, you know, since Roe v. Wade, lawmakers haven't been able to ban abortion outright, even though they wanted to. And with these heartbeat bans, they're trying, right? Right. But over and over again, courts courts have stopped them from, you know, banning abortion outright. What they have been able to do very successfully is control who has access to abortion. And I think these laws targeting public institutions are just one example of that, because people who have money and resources will always be able to travel to get access to abortion. 
and if Roe v. Wade is overturned, or some advocates would say when Roe v. Wade is overturned, you know, we see a division in this country between states where it's legal and states where it's states where abortion is legal and states where it's not. You know, that inequality is going to become even more um, evident than it already is. But, you know, people with money will be able to, will always be able to travel. Low-income people who rely on public institutions for care, who rely on public insurance, um, aren't going to be able to do that. They're right. not going to be able to, again, take the time off from work, wait 72 hours to right. find a hospital where they can be seen, pay thousands of dollars out of pocket. And so mm-hmm. I think as we envision a better future, and I know that's the way I'm getting through the Trump administration is by dreaming, dreaming of a better future. <laughs> and, and as we mm-hmm. think about, you know, Medicare for all, um, we just, we have to remember that reproductive health care um, has to be, and comprehensive reproductive health care needs to remain at the center of that conversation. I appreciate that tie-in. That's really great. And, and I mean, I think also, it has been also helpful, I think, in talking about it when we look at it through this lens of anti-choice, right, mm-hmm. um, by, 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 by really taking and steering the narrative because, you know, being pro-choice is such a – it allows for the option to exist for those who need it, right? Um, mm-hmm. This whole thing about people who are personally pro-life and all this other stuff, that's cool, but if, you're, if it's only a matter that you're personally pro-life, then you shouldn't have a problem with other people having the choice to make that decision for themselves. And so I do appreciate the reframing of this also as, you know, know, when we're discussing the Hyde Amendment, when we're discussing all of this, looking at how anti-choice, the prohibition of choice, is so woven throughout these different legislative initiatives, throughout these different attacks. It's not just the people who are standing uh, laying siege to to clinics like Calla Hayes' clinic in in in, in, uh, in uh, mm-hmm. North Carolina, mm-hmm. like you know, it is not just that. That is only a tip of the iceberg. You do have these intense legislative efforts, and you know, very strategic organizational efforts by nation national orgs to restrict and limit the ability of choice to exist in the system in any capacity, except for like you said, if you're so, someone of means and access to money you'll always be able to get the care that you need. It is the rest of us. It is people who rely on, you know, some facet of the system to have access to equitable, accessible, you know, affordable health care that need to be able to to have the the, the choice as well. Um, So I really appreciate that perspective and the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, this is really good. And, I mean, thanks for tying it into the other battles because I think – I think, you know, just thinking back to what you were saying earlier about how some of this stuff isn't even tracked, I think because there's so many battles being fought on so many fronts, folks are just, okay, we just got to at least hold the line here, but we do need to expand our lens some and be aware of this situation right here as well because this raises some other very serious concerns about we're talking about women who have um, some degree of, you know, health condition or sickness or threat to life who aren't able to receive necessary treatment, that's that's just really problematic. And whether you're, you know, pro-life and uh, pro-choice, however you describe yourself, it should be very disconcerting that there are women in this country who cannot get health care that they need during pregnancy. Regardless of how you feel about it, it should bother everybody that this is happening and that we're forcing women to the brink of potential death before they can be seen and treated. That's a problem. That's a real Absolutely. problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And you bring up this, this question of choice versus, you know, pro-choice versus pro-life. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
is it really pro-life to say that people who are suffering from heart conditions, people who are suffering from, you know, potentially life-endangering pregnancy complications should be forced to put their lives at risk, you know, Absolutely. in order to carry these pregnancies to term? You know, is that really a, a pro-life position? I don't think so. Absolutely. And particularly when we're talking about some of these instances, we're talking about women, as in the unfortunate case of Chelsea, who were going to be forced to either endure potential miscarriage or give birth to a stillborn baby or some other deeply traumatic, you know, experience that could also put their health at risk. Um, and I think that the inability to actually even acknowledge, understand what is at stake in these, these, these discussions just shows how, how little concern there is um, for women's health and how framing it as anti-choice makes a lot of sense and a way that we should be be carefully looking at our language. Like with a six-week, just just we're wrapping up, just even thinking about with a six-week ban and just seeing the framing from there was a rewire piece, uh, I think, about our van here, or, I mean, there's so many of them happening at the same time, so I don't remember which one. They're all blending together, but um, they're all blending together, and they're all going to cost taxpayer dollars to defend what's indefensible, but that's a whole other conversation. We're wasting money to yeah. prop up extremely misogynistic and dangerous legislation that ultimately you could have invested that money in maternal health care to begin with, right? I mean, okay. uh-huh. we're talking about states and places that won't even expand Medicaid and expand access to, to necessary health care, but they're willing to defend the indefensible. But I was going to say just even calling this a total ban, right, because thinking about at six weeks, so many women don't even know they're pregnant yet. So by banning abortion at six weeks, I mean, if especially if we're talking about low-income women, we're talking about women who don't have the same access to health care to begin with, so they're not necessarily having the same access to prenatal care. In some place like Georgia, where half the counties do not have an OBGYN to begin with, then you're talking about people who might not even have access to that early, you know, care to even sign up they're pregnant by six weeks, which, again, most people don't know they're pregnant at six weeks. So mm-hmm. it, it, is, it is an effect total, and, and we are... I appreciate when you were talking about, you know, we're looking at the overturning of Roe when, in effect, there is so much that's been happening to restrict the access to abortion, which is a safe, you know, medical procedure, where we're threatening and endangering people's lives, not just, uh, I mean, in, in, in so many different ways, because abortions, unfortunately, happen in places, whether it's legal or not. It's whether or not it's safe and performed in a way that can improve quality of life, that I think is also part of the concern and consideration um, in our discussion right now. And, and we're seeing a lot of push that completely ignores, you know, the safety aspect and, and taking care of people's health. Um, and it's, it's really disconcerting. I, I had no clue when you grew up learning about the battle of salt in the 60s and 70s, had no clue that we would also have to grow up to do the same thing. Um, it's, it's astonishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Amy, thank you so much for for chiming in and joining me today. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your show. Aww. All right, you guys. This has been another edition of Lance and Noah. Like, even if you aren't in one of these states that are child having these challenges, spread the word. 
help share and inform and engage people. If you are living in women's states, please check out your local NARAL, Planned Parenthood, whatever the local women's health center organization is where you are, to see, one, if they do need volunteers and you have time to volunteer, can you make a donation to help support whatever efforts they have going on? Or is there a petition? Is there something that you can just share? Because, like I said, there are quite a few, few states. I have a link to um, the states and different actions in the description of this episode. But if you, even if you're like, I know a lot of us work and we're really overburdened and tired down, but can you shoot off an email or some tweets or something to let legislators know that we are paying attention and they're not going to be able to just do this stuff on our watch? So there is a way to take – there is a way – Even if there isn't a way, we always find a way to make a way, and I will catch you guys again soon. Peace.